Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 22, and Genesis 7, 1 through 5. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above it. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I shall establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him to do. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Genesis chapter 7, 17 through 24. And the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And a water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Hey everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. So, so glad that you are here. I uh, love you guys, love this place, love being a part of it. Welcome those of you over in our East service and those of you who are tuning in. Uh, welcome. All right, well, uh, this is our 40th anniversary. Uh, do not miss uh, Father's Day, June 20th, when we really celebrated. It. it will be great. But if you've been looking at some of the pictures, I've had some people come to me and say, when are you growing that mustache back? You know, everybody in the 90s had a mustache. So yeah, just pay attention to those. 
All right, this is the second week of our 10-week series that we are calling One Story, One Hero. One Story, One Hero. We're looking at 10 stories in the Old Testament and uh, looking at how they fit into the overall arching, overarching story of the Bible and how each one of those stories points toward Jesus. One story, one hero. And as part of this series, we are inviting everyone to participate in what we're calling the Jesus Storybook Challenge. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. There are 44 stories in this that span the Bible. If you've ever wanted to kind of wrap your arms around the whole story, this is the way to do it. It's a children's book, but we actually, it's so well written, we actually use it for our, to teach our theology class. Uh, we are inviting everyone to, to buy one of these and to read it no matter how old you are. Uh, I read it to my wife out loud every night before we go to bed. It's just a great way to do it. And so uh, grab one of these. And when you do, oh, by the way, I was told after the first service, uh, we have sold out. Uh, you can sign up and grab one next week uh, if you will stop by the tables or the next steps area. If you have grabbed one, uh, don't forget to register. Uh, I had forgotten to register. You can get on our website and just type into the search bar, uh, Jesus Storybook, and you'll be able to register. We'd love to know everyone who is doing this. All right. Last week, we started out by looking at Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is when Adam and Eve rebel against God, decide to take charge of their own lives and of this planet. All right. Uh, every problem you have or have ever had can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the headwaters of all the sorrow and all the pain and all the hurt that has ever afflicted the human race. Last week, uh, Pastor Zach preached that sermon. He had three parts to it, and he talked about the lie, the damage, and the promise. The lie is that God does not really love you or want what is best for you, so you need to take care of you. You need to figure out what is best for you. The damage is what happens when you do that inside of you and then all around you when every person that you know and every person in your neighborhood and every person in our town, in our state, in our country, in our world is trying to do what's best for them. And then finally, the promise, which is that God has promised that one day he will prove his love to us to such a degree that it will begin to reverse all the damage of that lie. All right, so that damage began in Genesis chapter 3. It flows into Genesis chapter 4. By Genesis chapter 5, the human race is in a moral freefall, and that takes us to Genesis chapter 6 and the story that was just read to you, the story of Noah and the flood. And the story that was just read to you is about a storm, it's about a rescue, and it's about a promise. And here are my three points. If you are a note taker, uh, if you are not, this will just tell you kind of where I'm going. Uh, and I'm going to put them in the form of questions. And here's the first question. Why the flood? That's the storm. Why the ark? That's the rescue. And why the rainbow? That's the promise. Why the flood? Why the ark? Why the rainbow? First, why the flood? When you hear this story, one of the things that ought to strike you is that it is a terrible 
story. It, I know we've made it into a children's story, you know, where the animals go marching two by two. And, you know, when my kids were little, they had a little plastic ark and they had little animals they would put in the ark. But when you hear the story read or when you read it yourself, you, it's just a horrific story. It's a, it's a flood that wipes out everything. Uh, my daughter, Becca, uh, lives in Houston, Texas, and they experienced a flood a couple of years ago. And that flood, I mean, there is hardly anything more terrifying than a flood. I read where in Houston, during that rainfall, uh, there was enough water that fell on the city of Houston that would equal the amount of water that flows over Niagara Falls for 15 straight days, 24-7. And that is nothing compared to this flood. But the flood that they experienced in Houston was just wiped everything out. There is hardly anything more terrifying than a flood. And here it says that God sent this flood that wiped out virtually every living creature. And it's almost hard to wrap your head around it. And it can actually cause some issues for you and probably for your soul. And I say that because of, uh, a couple of years ago, we were having some work done on our bathroom at home. And the guy who was laying the tile uh, was a guy named Jeff. Uh, he kind of needed to talk to somebody. And my wife is a great listener. And so she would sit up there and talk with Jeff while he did his work. And so she was talking to him about Jesus and listening to him. And finally, Karen came to me and she said, listen, you need to take Jeff out and talk with him because he's got an issue that he just cannot get over when it comes to God and the Bible. And so I took Jeff and we went out, we went to a pub, spent a couple hours together. And this was his problem, this story. And he was saying to me, how can you believe in a God that would rain down judgment like this, wipe everything out? What kind of a God has that kind of wrath? How can you believe in a God of that kind of judgment? And he could never quite get over it. I got Jeff on one side. I told you my daughter Becca lives in Houston, and she's my youngest. She is a forensic interviewer, which means that, and she works for child services there in Houston, which means that she interviews sexually abused children. She is the first person that a sexually abused child talks to. She has interviewed more than 1,500 children during the time that she has worked for child services. She, her job is to listen and try to get them to tell the story of what happened to them. It is a very difficult job. Difficult for anyone, but particularly difficult for my baby girl who has such a tender heart and so much compassion. But we were down there last weekend. We got to visit uh, Becca and her husband, Sean. And uh, kind of out of the blue, she asked me this question. This happens with my family every once in a while. My kids will ask me a theological question. And she said, hey, Dad, uh, do you think there are levels to hell? I thought, okay, that's an interesting question. Uh, I said, I, I don't know, Beck. Dante, who wrote Dante's Inferno, he thought there were seven levels of hell. And the seventh one wasn't hot. It was actually cold, right? So I'm just talking like off the top of my head because you know, it's stuff I read. And then I look at her face and uh, her eyes were full of sorrow. And she had kind of a smoldering anger behind her eyes. And then she said, almost in a whisper, I hope there are levels to hell. I hope there are levels to hell. 
what would make my baby daughter say that she hopes there are levels to hell? Well, you know. She has heard stories from children that makes her long for justice, that makes her deeply want to believe that evil will not end or will not win in the end, that there is a God who sees, that there is a God who knows, that there is a God who will make things right someday. Right? So I have this guy named Jeff on my one side saying, how can you believe in a God who would have such, such wrath on people? And I have my daughter saying, how can you believe in a God who doesn't have wrath when he sees what goes on? Listen, it is difficult to try to defend hell, to try to defend God's wrath, and I get that that's a problem. But if you do not believe in a God of justice, if you do not believe in a God of wrath and a God of hell, I think you have a bigger problem. Actually, there was a guy named Miroslav Volf, who's a philosopher and author. I think he teaches at one of the Ivy League schools. He is uh, from Croatia and Bosnia. And he says the idea that there is no hell, and I'll paraphrase, he says basically is very popular in the suburbs of America where people are nice to each other and you have nice neighbors and you never see anything really, really bad. But if you have grown up where I grew up and you've seen the things that I have seen, then you long for a God who will one day make things right. So if you do not believe in a God of wrath, I think that problem will manifest itself in two ways. One, uh, there is no defense against evil. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great uh, atheist philosopher, said this, if there is no God, there is nothing wrong with violence. If there is no God, there is nothing wrong with the strong dominating the weak at any time, anywhere. Without a God of justice, without a God of wrath, there is no defense for evil. But the other thing, the way that will manifest itself in you is when injustice happens to you. When something unjust happens to you, it it comes inside of you like a poison. And it's really hard to get rid of it. You know, for every act of physical violence, there are thousands of acts of emotional violence. People who've talked about you behind their back, your back, who have posted stuff on social media about whatever it is, it will enter into you like poison and you will think of nothing else but trying to make it right yourself, trying to get some kind of justice yourself unless you believe in a God who sees, a God who knows, a God who one day will make all things right, right? You want to know why the flood? This is what it says. And I want you to just pay attention to the words that are used here. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So very, very strong words. I read a book with my circle group called uh, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, It's actually part of the curriculum uh, for circles if you're a part of a circle. But it's it's a book about Jesus. But in it, it talks about the justice of God being part of God's character. But it says that whenever God has to enact justice, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. And that brings me to the second point. And the second question is, why the ark? 
Why the ark? And when I ask that, what I mean is, why doesn't human history end right at verse 5? The verse I just read. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why doesn't God just wipe everything out and boom, it's gone? Why are we here? Why are you here? And the answer is the very next verse. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And then this, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. What an interesting phrase. Actually, that phrase is used another time in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 54. This is what uh, verse 6 says. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. What that says is uh, that he likens it to uh, a person, a, a woman who was married young, and whose husband leaves her and divorces her. And he says she is grieved in her heart. Same phrase that the Bible uses to describe God in Genesis chapter 6. The reason that divorce hurts so much is because at one point your hearts were knit together. And a divorce means that your heart now is torn apart. The fact that God says that he was grieved to his heart means that God has voluntarily knit his heart to yours. You know, the, the origin of the lie is that God does not love you. God loves you so much that he knit his heart to yours so that he has voluntarily decided to suffer when you hurt, when you do things. It will hurt his heart. There's a philosopher at Yale named Nicholas Walterstoff, and he has a phrase that I love. He says this, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. What he's saying is you want to know why history continues, why you're here. It's because the God of the universe decided not just to be angry, but to be in pain that the God of the universe decided to suffer. You want to know why the flood? It's because of the violence on the earth. You want in the wrath and the justice of God, but you want to know why the ark? It's because God decided to knit his heart to you to provide a rescue, right? And so God says to Noah, build a boat. And there's all kinds of details about the boat, which is interesting to me. I mean, pages of it, we just had some of it read, but we know how big the ark was supposed to be, or what the dimensions were supposed to be, what the kind of wood was supposed to be used, what kind of pitch inside and out to make it waterproof. And we have all those details because this boat, this ark, had to be able to survive what nothing else could, what nothing else would survive, this ark would survive. Right? When the wrath of God poured out as a flood. This boat was built to take a beating. And those who went inside the boat were spared that beating. Do you see? So many stories in the Bible are just patterns of what Jesus is about. And here in this story, Noah has to believe God. God says build a boat way before a single drop had fallen from the heavens. And Noah believes him. And then Noah had to believe that if he got inside the boat, that the boat would be strong enough to take 
a beating, and so he wouldn't. And of course, that's what happened. And that brings me to my third point, which is why the rainbow? Why the rainbow? At the end of this story, if you know the end of the story, we didn't have it read. But there, it ends with a covenant. And a covenant is a promise that God makes. And this is the, the covenant that he makes. This is uh, Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 17, or verse 12. And it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. A few things I want you to notice. First is that uh, the word rainbow isn't there. It's just the word bow. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds. I have set my bow down. And that word bow is the word not for a rainbow, but for this, the weapon. Everywhere else in scripture, the word bow is used for a weapon. And what God is saying is that I will lay my bow, my wrath down. And this is my promise that I will never again pour out my wrath like I have this day. I will never again flood the earth. A couple things I want you to know. One is God says that, and it's interesting that he is not thinking that Noah and his family will have this do-over and everything is going to be great from now on. He doesn't say, I won't have any cause to be angry anymore because you will do what is right and it will be a perfect civilization. He knows it won't be. Now, I was thinking that uh, Noah had three uh, sons, uh, three children, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? And I was thinking, I have three kids, and I was trying to think, okay, what would it be like if I was Noah? You know, if my family, my clan, you know, and I I have a a great wife. I love my wife. We uh, have a great relationship. I love my three kids. I love their spouses. It's just the coffee group is just a super group, right? Now, if we were in the ark instead of Noah, right? And and then uh, after the flood subsided, God said, go, multiply, fill the earth, right? And we began to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I just thought, as good a family as we are, do you know what the world would look like now if we were the ones in the ark and not Noah? It'd look exactly the same. You know why? Because what entered into the ark were not just Noah and his family. It wasn't just the animals. It was sin. That God knew that inside of Noah's heart and his children's hearts, were, they were still twisted with sin. So God knew that eventually there would be wickedness on the earth. There would be violence on the earth. But still, he hung the bow up. And what he was saying was something 
in particular, he was saying, I'm setting a pattern, I want you to know. He's setting a pattern with the ark, with the flood, with his wrath, with his justice, that God's heart is still a just heart, and God's heart is still knit to yours and to mine. So God was promising a greater rescue and a greater rescuer, that God one day would provide someone who would be like an ark for you and for me, that would shield us from the beating of God's wrath so we could experience the love of God again, the way we were designed to experience it. I was just reading in 2 Corinthians during my quiet time this past week, and I came across that great verse in chapter 5, where it says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That God one day would give his own son and his son would take the beating of his wrath for all of our sin, all of your sin and all of mine, for those who trust in him and will get in him. It's interesting, the bow, uh, the rainbow arcs like this, right? It comes out towards the earth. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a great uh, 19th century uh, English preacher, said that the reason the, the rainbow arcs the way it arcs and not like this is that uh, from now on, the wrath of God will shoot an arrow into his own heart instead of towards us. I thought that is such an amazing thing that God would decide that he, that justice still had to be done, but that he would bear the price for us through Jesus. It's called a sign of the covenant, the rainbow. Every time there's a sign of the covenant, it points to the gospel. It's a reminder of Jesus. In a few minutes, we are going to take communion. Communion is a sign of the covenant. We take bread and we are reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us. We take juice, and we are reminded that Jesus' blood was shed for us on the cross. Listen, this is what I want you to, to think of. Here in Northeast Ohio, we have plenty of clouds, plenty of storms. Every time uh, there's a rainbow, there is a storm. Every time you see clouds forming for a storm, I want you to be reminded of the justice of God, of the righteousness of God, that God is a God who sees, God is a God who knows. God says, vengeance is mine because he is just. Be reminded of that storm, not just for the storms that you are going through, the things that people have done to you that you can give to God, but also be reminded of the things that you have done that are worthy of the, of the judgment of God. But every time you see a rainbow, every time you see a rainbow, be reminded that there's a God in heaven whose heart is knit to yours to such a degree that he would send his son to be the rescuer, to take the beating for you so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could experience the joy and the love of what it means to be forgiven and united with the God who made you and calls you by name. One story 
one hero, and it's Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you, and uh, I am so, so grateful. I'm grateful for uh, this story, even though it is such a horrific story in so many ways, but it reminds me that you are God of justice and that I can trust you in the midst of different things that happen to me. But I also, because of this story, realize that you are God who has knit your heart to mine and to every person here, and you offer us your son, Jesus, as our own ark, as someone who would take the beating of your wrath so we could experience what he deserves and not what we deserve. I pray that every person here will acknowledge you as their Savior, will experience what it means to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.